You're listening to a podcast appearing on the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network. Jessica Gazzola, a Catholic priest. And I'm Francis Krebs, presiding bishop of the Ecumenical Catholic Communion. And you're listening to A Priest and a Bishop Walk into a Story, a podcast of the Ecumenical Catholic Communion. You've walked into an ongoing conversation on progressive Catholic life. Our faith never stands still, but always evolves. And here, stories are the agent of change for the open-minded and wholehearted. On today's show, we walk into Dr. Julie Byrne's story, author and professor of religion and chair of Catholic studies at Hofstra University in New York. Her newest book just hit the shelves and online bookstores, The Other Catholics, Remaking America's Largest Religion, caught our attention because it's in part our story, the story of independent Catholics in the United States. But simply reading the acknowledgments suggested that Julie's journey with the other Catholics is more than an academic interest. Welcome, Julie. It's great to have you today, and we're anxious to walk into your story. Thank you so much for having me. Just the first few pages into your book, we just ordered these books on Amazon. They came last week. Uh, This book is just newly published, right? It just came out like this month, like May of 2016, correct? It did. It's newly minted and Uh, and even a little early, so it's out already. You can get it now. Yeah, we were surprised to get it. So Frank and I had started paging through it, and just a couple pages in, I don't always read the acknowledgments, but I decided I would. And the last paragraph where you talked about your family was just so fascinating to me. It's like, no wonder this woman does what she does. So maybe you could just start by telling us a little bit about your background and your family and how you got into this career of of exploring religion in America? The family is where everyone starts, right? right. The <laughs> idea of scholarship being completely objective is a little bit of a myth because we're all positioned somewhere and go at it from our particular perspectives. In my case, I come from a family that was Roman Catholic on both sides, going back several generations. Mm-hmm. My two parents were the product of Vatican II Catholicism, Mm -hmm. and I would regard them as hippie parents, shall we say. (laughs) In any case, they were doing a very progressive version of Roman Catholicism and, you know, sent us through 12 years, 13 years of Roman Catholic school. So I definitely got the traditional basis, but also with this edge that was Vatican II spirit and, you know, their... 60s inclined hearts. So when I got to college, like a lot of people who are college age, and I was the first in my family not to go to a Roman Catholic college, Hmm. I went to Duke University and there was unmoored from that background um, for the first time and slowly just picked up some things about Catholicism that I had questions about. Again, I'm certainly not alone in just going through that questioning period. And I stopped going to Catholic Mass. I did spend seven years in a historically black Baptocostal church, and then I stopped going to that church as well, and sort of 
along the way had decided that I was going to at least study religion if it was if I wasn't going to do religion. These days, I'm still very, very interested in who knows what will happen in my future. But really where I landed was in the study of American religion. Mm-hmm. And, you know, looking at this particular book, I think that it helped me in my questions from my past and my family's past mm-hmm. about Catholicism to look at the way that independent Catholics answer the question of what it means to be Catholic. I think that anyone inside or outside the Roman Church has those questions, but it might be independent Catholics these days who are posing the most radical questions, and I had very little clue growing up that independent Catholics even existed. So when I found out that there's this whole subterranean history that goes back centuries, literally, of asking different questions and answering them, I definitely wanted to look into that. This is so fascinating to me, Julie. And and by the way, your book, I'm only about a third of the way into it right now, but it's captivating me. Uh, you're a natural storyteller, so it's 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 great to listen to how articulately you unfold uh, the mystery of this uh, subterranean life as you express it. It may be that you, the fact that you were in this uh, sort of, what did you call it, a Baptist Pentecostal, something like that, a sort of a crossbreed? Yes, I've, I've used this funny term called Bapticostal, which is yeah. which is a Baptist church, but um, with Pentecostal flavor, as many historically black Baptist churches do yes. have. So anyway, it, so. Well, so it's just the fact that you would be even open to that strikes me right there that there's a kind of a kind of a readiness for the other, because I mean, just judging from your picture, you're white, you tell us that you come from a Roman Catholic background. So I, what is it that gave you the openness to want to explore that, do you think? This probably does go back to more family stuff mm-hmm. you see in the acknowledgments that I'm sort of calling out family members for being other Catholics mm-hmm. themselves. Mm-hmm. They were not members of independent Catholic churches, but there's different ways of doing Catholicism, sure. and maybe I was exposed to that mm-hmm. in family. For example, my parents, when we lived in Durham, North Carolina, were members not of the local white Catholic parish, but rather chose to go to a very small mission black Catholic parish that was on the grounds of North Carolina Central University. And, you know, this was in the South in the mid-60s, and they just really decided to, you know, put their money where their mouth was in terms of social justice commitments. And that was, therefore, for them stepping out. But for me, growing up in that ethos was perhaps actually more comfortable. And so, you know, one of the interests of Mm -hmm. my life has been Mm -hmm. how the uh, Roman Catholic Church did or did not um, address racial justice issues in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And when I came to the point of questioning, you know, what Roman Catholicism um, could do towards certain commitments in the U.S., it was very much about stances on women, stances on sexuality, but mm. almost even more so stances on racial justice issues. Right. Mm. And in the honoring sort of the, the matrix of oppression, I'm sure you're just 
able to see all those connections too, that very similar dynamics going on with whites targeting blacks and men targeting women and the normative straight society sort of targeting. I, I use the word targeting because that's the verb that we're used to using in the circles that I travel in here in St. Louis, where we try to look at all these different kinds of oppression. D- do you know what I mean when I say that? Does that make sense for, for you? For sure. Yeah. For mm-hmm. sure. Just that, just the, you know, when there's, when there's any instance of oppression or marginalization, it's going to be usually coming from several directions at once, or at least implicating several directions at once. What the kids say these days is intersectionality, right? That's the word I was looking um, for. Exactly, uh exactly what I mean. Right, Yeah. yeah. Okay, good. I was kind of picking that up, even in your discussion in the book, about applying some of the language that we use around gay and lesbian issues. Well, actually, all LGBTQ kinds of issues and how you're applying some of this language to thinking about church so that you referred at one point to cis Catholics, which is a, a phrase that mm-hmm. uh, maybe uh, not everyone would understand. Would you like to explain what that means? Sure. So, so cis is a new word that the kids are using. <laughs> it is also um, really helpful to sort of put a word on what is taken to be normative. So, so cisgender just means that you identify with the sexual organs with which you were born mm-hmm. and and cissexual means that you are attracted to the opposite sex mm-hmm. um, or opposite gender and um, both of these terms cissexual and cisgender substitute for what most people think of as heterosexual and and quote just normal male or female to use cis in the context of Catholicism is to is to sort of mark out that you could make a distinction between those Catholics who may be able to live more comfortably within official Roman teachings that make uh, heterosexuality normative mm-hmm. and as opposed to LGBTQ people who might find that, you know, the normative hierarchical teachings of the Roman Church put them really at a distance or disadvantage. Well, I just find, I mean, the language piece, I think, is fascinating to me. And I also find it just really compelling on a personal level, because I, too, resonate with your, well, I resonate with your story in that, you know, I was raised Roman Catholic, but then I I went to grad school following my then fiance and then husband, who was United Church of Christ, to a United Church of Christ seminary. And I decided to pursue my Master's of Divinity there, although I still identified as Roman Catholic. But then I was exposed to all of the, the this ecumenism and all of these different denominations. And I started working for United Church of Christ churches. I started worshiping with my Black Baptist friends. And, and all of a sudden, I felt different. And I think that experience of ecumenism, which I think you talk about in your book too, is the independent movement is sort of porous with the Protestants um, and and, and other spiritual movements. But it primed me for then being introduced to independent Catholicism where I could be like, yes, I'm Catholic, but I don't feel straight. (laughs) Like (laughs) I don't feel like I'm the Catholic that I was taught that I should be. I'm 
something else because I identify with these Protestant movements so much, and yet at my core, I still feel Catholic. I, I want to express my Catholicism in something that maybe looks a little bit more like Buddhist meditation, and yet I still feel Catholic. And so that there's this variation in this variety that's not honored or didn't feel honored in my growing up. And so I kind of heard that in the bit of your book I was able to get into and in your story. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that exposure to different religions in your history, but then also in your research. Sure. Well, I think it's just really interesting to look at how religions in America, because there's so many of them always abutting each other in cities, in neighborhoods, in you know, neighbors living adjacent to each other. Mm -hmm. You know, it used to be that maybe there were two churches in town. There was, you know, a Protestant church and a Catholic church, and they stayed clear of each other. Mm -hmm. But these days, pluralism is so strong, and the mixing of religions just goes to new heights and creates new combinations. So I really found that that's the case for almost anyone who's American today is going to have run into some version of mixing. I think when you're from a Roman Catholic background, there's still some normative stuff about not mixing and mm. staying Roman Catholic, and it's the best religion. And maybe mm. a lot of religions do do that still. We're the best. And so, you know, mm. maybe religions have that right to do that. But I also think that it means that one doesn't get what you might get in independent Catholic churches, which is which have historically been more porous, as you say. Mm -hmm. They've been porous with the Roman Church itself, mm -hmm. and they've been porous with Protestantism, and they've been porous with non-Christian religions, too. Mm -hmm. So I think in any religion you do find that, but independent Catholicism is very interesting for a Catholicism in being so intentional about that. So in my looking at different independent Catholic communities, there were some that, you know, very much talk about the, for example, invisible church mm -hmm. ideal mm -hmm. that really comes from within, you know, Reformed Protestantism, that, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. we we aren't about being one big solo Catholicism uh, mm -hmm. visibly speaking, located in one institution. Instead, the invisible church is where it's at. And the mm -hmm. invisible church is everywhere, mm -hmm. and we're doing our little local version of Catholicism as best we can, mm -hmm. but it's open to the insights, the you know divine acting in many other spaces and flowing mm -hmm. in. There's independent Catholics who are sitting Buddhist meditation at Mass. There mm -hmm. are independent Catholics who are going to some of the experiments, for example, of Dom B. Griffiths in India and having puja Masses huh. that are taking from traditional Hinduism and combining mm -hmm. with a Catholicism. The real thing that I found along the way was... In, in exploring what independent Catholicism could mean and giving some coherence to it, was to sort of try to move our definition of Catholicism off of really what's a Roman theological definition, which is communion with the Pope. Catholicism means right. communion with the Pope, yeah. end of story. Yeah. And instead try to say that, well, there's all these other people who 
also, along with Roman Catholics, claim the word Catholic. So how do you talk about it all? And I really came up with what I call the three S's, sacraments, succession, and saints. Mm -hmm. Sacraments, succession, and saints. Mm -hmm. So independent Catholics, for the most part, again, not universally, but Mm -hmm. for the most part, do try to honor a tradition of maintaining apostolic succession, Mm -hmm. the practice of the seven sacraments, and the reverence for the saints, and an understanding of the communion of saints. Those three S's, along with a honoring of the historic word Catholic, Mm -hmm. um, whatever that means, capital C Catholic in that context, are what I've found it's just a more useful sort of flexible description of what Catholicism is that doesn't pin it only to what the Roman Church says, which is, you know, you have to be in communion with the Pope to be fully Catholic. Yeah, this is just bringing up in me a conversation that I feel like we have over and over again in our little local parish of the Ecumenical Catholic Communion, where I think this is an exercise, Frank, you led us through a number of years ago, where you drew a house. Mm. And Mm. it was, I think the convocation was titled something like, what does it mean to be Catholic? And we had people brainstorm, okay, so if, if Catholic is the house, what do we put in our living room as Catholics now expressing this new independent Catholicism? What do we put in the attic to maybe pull out another time or to look at and reminisce about? And what do we like pitch in the dumpster? And it was just such a creative exercise that was really helpful. But I also feel like every person's house looked really different within our community. And the furniture was always moving. Even as people were in our community for a number of years, things would shift and move where even saints would like occupy a different position in the house, or even the mass shifted in importance in different ways and where people would come in and out. And so it's just so fascinating. You were just able to, I feel like, Julie, you're coming to this place, or we're reading you and coming to this place of recognition and saying, oh, yeah, like, it's such a helpful book for us because it's like, that's why we have these conversations over and over again. That's why things feel so dynamic and to have Uh, someone with your academic scope to be able to look on the outside and say, well, these are some of the influences. There's kind of great comfort in that, I guess I found it. (laughs) Um, And and sort of like, oh, so somebody is seeing us and recognizing what's what's happening in a positive way, or at least in a neutral way. I think there's a lot of judgment sometimes about being... Well, not being cis Catholics. Right, right. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, Yeah, uh uh-huh. Yeah, and maybe experimenting or finding a path that is a little bit more evolving. Yes, I found the entire journey of, of sojourning with independent Catholics for you know about 10 years and ongoing to be so enlivening in the direction of the experimental answers. I, I say in the book that I found you know these communities to be Catholicism's research lab. It's mm-hmm arts incubator, it's mm-hmm. research and development, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's really a, a place where experiment is the norm. And one disadvantage of that is that communities can feel more uncertain and unstable. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's the loss of definite canon law for six centuries mm-hmm. <laughs> that mm-hmm. really, you know, gives a kind of a fortress quality to Mm. Um, to other versions of Catholicism, not just the Roman Church, but also Anglicanism to a certain extent, and Mm -hmm. Orthodoxy. So I think that independent Catholicism 
can feel like an uncomfortable space because human beings are really often uncomfortable with uncertainty. Yet to be in that space and to sort of let it go and let it flow was so admirable to me and courageous to me and did reach for some new answers quicker than you otherwise could. Mm -hmm. I love the image of the house and moving around the furniture uh, when you're tired of it this way and um, keeping some things in the attic or the basement and <laughs> some things go out <laughs> to the dumpster. It's a wonderful image. And um, and I think that, you know, the tremendous diversity within the independent Catholic movement and one of the things to put out there is just that there's some independent Catholic churches that have decided at this point to really be more traditional, for example, we're definitely going to be Nicene Christianity no matter what, and everything happens within general frame of affirming Nicene Christianity. There's others that, you know, want to do Zazen meditation at Mass. That's Mm -hmm. different. That really is different, and that's a different experiment, and it's really not within the bounds of Nicene Christianity, but doing an experimental blend. I think it takes all kinds and, you know, to to really have that as a recognition of the norm in independent Catholicism, that it's really different, it's really experimental, is okay. Right. As you're talking, Julie, I'm just thinking about, you know, where I would put myself on this sort of spectrum. I'm a big, big fan of the Contemporary Church of, of Utrecht had the opportunity to take a summer school over there a couple of years ago in in old Catholic theology. What I admired about them so much is, whereas they're rooted in Nicene uh, Christianity, as you say, and also very aware of canon law, of those early councils and things like that, they still take that very seriously. But at the same time, it's a very contemporary church. So you have 30 and 40-year-old theologians who are extremely contemporary people. I mean, to talk with them, they're, they're fully engaged in the contemporary culture and making this ancient faith something that is easily incarnated in today's world such that they have no problem coming to the conclusion that they should ordain women 20 years ago or that they should be open to gays and lesbians in the church. They they see the contemporary culture as a stranger that knocks at the door and should be offered hospitality. Uh, that's that's how they speak about it. And so there there is a sense of this experimentation and this willingness to kind of dance with the culture, and yet at the same time uh, rooted in some ancient truths. And when they talk about the Nicene Creed, it's never so much about just reciting it as you know, what they're getting out of it. They seem to have a deep appreciation of the relational nature of God and the divinity of Christ that's held out to all of us as as our lives are raised up and things like that. So if I were going to stick, you know, where I am in the on this spectrum, I guess I would say I want enough experimentation that we're able to dance with the culture and enough rootedness that somebody doesn't have to think they're going to come back next week and we're going to be something totally different. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're still sort of anchored somewhere. Right, right. I think that, you know, figuring out that exact balance is what all the independent Catholic churches are doing mm-hmm. and just make different decisions about it. Sure. You know, how mm-hmm. much rootedness, how much experimentation in, in different proportions. Sure. But I, too, find the old Catholic church of Utrecht to be, you know, such a 
a paradigm of doing this balancing work. Obviously, they've been doing it the longest of Mm -hmm. modern Catholicisms in 1724 is when they stepped out by having their first bishop ordained by a traveling Roman bishop who they kind of collared Mm-hmm. As he blew into port in Amsterdam, please, right, please right. help us start right. this different thing, this different direction. And since then, they really have been at the vanguard of what I'd call Reform Catholicism, which mm-hmm. was, you know, a, a huge movement for mm-hmm. for the entire modern period in Europe mm-hmm. and to a certain extent in the New World too. And you know, that Reform Catholicism was always looking at whether there were a different way of conceptualizing church authority that the Pope in the modern era in the Roman church was, you know, taking this ultramontane direction of centralizing authority in the papacy and making the Pope ever more powerful and raising the Pope above the other bishops. Mm -hmm. And the Utrecht church always found that to be a deeply problematic and not traditional direction mm-hmm. where they said, you know, it's really always been um, the bishops of the church as representatives of the people of the church making the decisions altogether. And so for them to put in that collegial uh, polity and hold to it mm-hmm. in the face of, you know, the Roman church going ever more in the ultramontane direction, I think is just this tremendous witness, and to the extent that contemporary independent Catholics take up that lineage, I really think that, you know, sometimes the flashpoints of the what I call the bedroom issues of uh, sexuality or ordaining women, ordaining out gay people, all of those can get the attention of, you know, what American independent Catholics are doing. But really much deeper, it is this tradition of claiming that there's a more ancient version of authority in Catholicism than mm, the Pope. Yeah. And that ancient authority is, you know, about the Holy Spirit working among bishops in council who are representing their localities. And it's really quite radical, politically radical. Sure. Um, it's it's very anti-empire. It's very anti-monarchical. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, the Roman Church really holds to vestiges of a Roman Empire way of authority, notwithstanding Pope Francis, who all independent Catholics really love, and I right. love him too. Yeah. Sure. But he is still in the seat of Peter that has been conceptualized as right. a very centralized um, role. And, you know, arguably he can get so much done because that is his role. So the independent Catholics who are trying to do some Pope Francis things structurally, I'd say, as opposed to by fiat, are also very, very interesting. And and speaking of that, I know at uh, some of the synods he's held, he wanted to get lay people's voices heard. It's, It's true also in Utrecht that they are not just about the bishops collaborating, although that's definitely true. The bishops are very tight with each other, but they believe in this concept of synodality so that so that all of the people and all of the priests have their voices heard whenever decisions are made. So it's really the yeah. entire church listening to each other. And I find that just awesome. I, the most, uh, for a traditional Catholic, this would be an awesome way to hear it summed up one Old Catholic theologian said to me that in the Old Catholic Eucharist, 
when the people say amen, that's when the Eucharistic prayer is finished. So it's not like just the priest is doing this. It's it's like it's not really it's not considered done until the people say amen. And, and that's really yeah. a vision of their whole church. It's awesome. I would love to um, get back to, to your life a little bit, Julie. And the old Catholics, I think, in the Union of Utrecht is probably a little bit more visible to Europeans. Maybe. I don't know. I haven't spent much time in Europe. But in the United States, I think you, you even talk in your early chapters about how independent Catholicism is, is practically invisible. So how did you stumble across independent Catholicism and what caught your attention? For sure. It's it's really interesting that I did decide at a certain point to study religion and specialize in American religion and specialize more specifically in American Catholicism. And in my whole studies, no one mentioned that there was such a thing as independent Catholicism. Mm. I do think that others are more aware. i I do know that those who are leaders of Catholic churches, Orthodox, Anglican, Roman Catholic, are very aware of independent Catholics. Mm. And so the knowledge is out there, and perhaps for reasons of their own, they aren't spreading the knowledge (laughs) that independent Catholics Mm. exist. But how I ran across independent Catholics was as an undergraduate at Duke University, Mm. I was going to church at that time, going to Mass, and invited to campus was a priest of the Washington Archdiocese, Father George Stallings. George Stallings was doing a Roman Catholic evangelism tour at that time, so he came to Duke Chapel and held Mass at Duke Chapel, which was a very Afrocentric Mass, which is what he was doing at that time, and I loved it. I thought it was the second coming of Jesus (laughs) church. I thought it was great, and within five years, he was separated from the Archdiocese of Washington and starting an independent Catholic church. It was called the Imani Temple, also known as the African American Catholic Congregation. Mm. This was in 1989. It got huge national media coverage. And I actually attended the Imani Temple for a period of three years or so, not regularly, but as research, I thought, I'm going to write something about the Imani Temple. Mm. And one time when I was there for an anniversary celebration, I saw on the altar a whole range of priests and bishops who were not from the Imani Temple. Mm. And I asked one of them afterwards, so who are you? Where do you come from? And he said, I'm from the North American Old Roman Catholic Church. Mm. And I thought, there's more of them? Mm. Oh, my gosh. Mm. And so from there, just started to realize that there's many more Mm -hmm. jurisdictions of independent Catholics that... Stallings himself had called on a California person in old Catholic lineage to ordain some of his priests and then um, raise him to a bishop so his movement could go on. And basically, I just started to fathom that there was a different version of Catholicism that a lot of people had been experimenting with for quite some time. So in the book, I was able to take the time to visit a number of jurisdictions Mm -hmm. to generate a survey that could sort of take a snapshot of what 
a number of churches on the progressive side were doing. And I I really just started to try to get a sense of how I could tell the story. Mm-hmm. Um, as you know, there's so many jurisdictions and the mm-hmm. entanglements and complications of them are too much to tell in one book. And so how could I tell a story that could give it some focus? And I really looked to find one jurisdiction with which I could sort of go deep on some personal stories about particular people and then through them indicate the breadth of the larger movement. So that's what I tried to do. It's, you know, otherwise a little bit too encyclopedic, but narrowing down to one jurisdiction. In the end, it was not the Imani Temple whose story I wanted to tell. The Imani Temple is wonderful and do show up in the book and um, and I think have a, a very signal importance. But I decided to work with the Church of Antioch. Okay, so Julie, tell us a little bit about the Church of Antioch, who really features uh, prominently in the other Catholics. I chose the Church of Antioch not because they are the most important or the most successful, and they know that too. I chose them because they helped me tell the story. They are a church that's a little bit older. Mm -hmm. They have fantastic archives that I could use. Mm. And I say to all the independent Catholic jurisdictions listening, save your stuff, save your archives, (laughs) take care of your material. And they were also involved very early in the move among independent Catholics to ordain women, which I thought was a really important story Mm -hmm. to tell. Mm -hmm. In the era of Pope Francis, there might be in the Roman Church some reforms that Catholics have been looking for for a very long time, yet there's also a sense of what Francis can't or won't do. And I think one of the things that's still not going to happen is ordaining women. So I really wanted to put front and center that there are independent Catholic churches that ordain women. And that is a story that the Church of Antioch could really help me tell. Yeah, that's beautiful. And we would love, we are looking forward to continuing to talk with Julie Byrne, author of The Other Catholics Remaking America's Largest Religion. And we look forward to hearing more of those stories about the Church of Antioch and other independent churches you've come into contact with. But you're listening to A Priest and a Bishop Walk Into a Story on the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network. We'll be right back. Wouldn't it be cool if your advertising could last forever? It can with perpetual advertising. Here's how it works. Unlike TV or radio ads where every instance the ads are broadcast, they're only played once and lost forever. Perpetual advertising could have repeat exposure and replayability weeks, months, and even years after they're inserted in a podcast. So even if a podcast is a few years old, your ads will still be impactful to repeat listeners as well as new listeners. This gives your advertising dollar the most bang for the buck. Find out more about perpetual advertising at twoguystalking.com forward slash sponsors. Things in 1982 were a lot more simple. BMX bikes, the Versailles apartment complex in Schaumburg, Illinois, the sweet, innocent kiss of Andrea Schaefer, and of course, a little film from a man named Steven Spielberg called E.T., science fiction, the detail of a broken but still together family, the relationships that were made when you were 12, ones that are never again truly realized. It seems a lot heavier than most remember, but 
all of these things and more await you in the Two Guys Talking Perspective Review of Steven Spielberg's E.T. 1982 on the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network. Check it out now at twoguystalking.com. That's the number two, guystalking.com. Like what you're hearing on A Priest and a Bishop Walk Into a Story? We are listener and donor supported. Donate now and hear more stories from an inclusive and welcoming Catholic worldview. Visit us at apriestandabishop.com and walk away changed. Thought about a career in voiceover? Need a great cost-effective on-hold message for your organization or business? Don't know where to start? Check out The Voice Farm your one-stop shop for voiceover needs. Check it out now by accessing The Voice Farm at voicefarmers.com and see what difference can be made with a company that is truly outside the box. From The Voice Box, voicefarmers.com. That's voicefarmers.com. Let us build a house where all are named, their songs and visions heard and loved and treasured, taught and claimed as words within the word. Built of tears and cries and laughter, prayers of faith and songs of grace. Let this house proclaim from floor to rafter, all are welcome, all are welcome, all are welcome in this place. This is Marty Hoggins' song that we sing so very often in our independent Catholic church in the ecumenical Catholic communion. That kind of feels like our mantra sometimes in the independent (laughs) world that we live, Frank and Julie, I'm sure you encountered. Tell us, just tell us one of your favorite stories of encountering an old uh, independent Catholic community. And you talk, you use the word magic in your book a lot. Maybe talk to us about the magic of independent Catholicism that you found. I really thought that you know, there's a way in which independent Catholics are so small and relative to, you know, the Roman Church, less powerful. But there's there's ways that that smallness can be very powerful. So independent Catholics individually are very committed to social justice issues. But as churches, they really can't combine to rent buses, to go Mm. to the climate marches, or send lobbyists to state capitals. It's not that kind of social justice footprint. Mm -hmm. What independent Catholics do so well is what I call sacramental justice. Mm. Not social justice, but sacramental justice. Mm -hmm. And that's because in small churches, what you can do is celebrate the sacraments in transformative ways, in justice-seeking ways. And so I really found that there's two parts to sacramental justice, and one part is the justice part, so that if social justice is looking for everyone to have access to society in the same way, Mm -hmm. the sacramental justice impulses open the sacraments. And so one of the things that I kept seeing over and over was simply an open communion table that Mm -hmm. in many Catholicisms, the communion is restricted to members in good standing. 
and that leaves out a lot of people, those who are divorced or those who are of different Christian or non-Christian communities. So, you know, when there can be an open table and you see a presider say, this is not a reward for being good. This is a tonic, a medicine open to everyone who Christ invites to the healing table. And you see tears flow as people realize that they can take communion for the first time, perhaps in decades. So I've seen a woman who had not gotten her first Catholic marriage annulled, who had married her husband who was Baptist. Mm. Um, She'd never taken communion, Mm. much less with him. But Mm -hmm. in an independent Catholic church, she walks to the front and Mm -hmm. standing with him takes communion for the first time. And they're both in tears and Mm -hmm. the presider is in tears and their whole family back in the Mm -hmm. pew is in tears. And it's just very, very moving for people to have that sacramental moment again. And that doesn't even speak to, you know, that you can have same-sex marriages, that you can have women be ordained, you can have married men be ordained, Mm -hmm. you can have LGBTQ people be ordained, and all of these opennesses really just, the sacraments are available to anyone who you know, completes the training to do them, is an openness I find to be very justice-making. And it's, you know, in this way that independent Catholic churches can move and do it and be on the frontier. So I really found that to be uh, amazing to witness over and over. And there is a kind of magic in that, isn't there? It's it's just the magic of, of simply... It's got an authentic uh, humanity that kind of comes comes through in that sort of invitation. And it's ironic that the current Pope, Pope Francis, uses that same language that you used when you were talking about the Eucharist. He will say, this is not a reward for being good. This is food for the journey, and we all need it. And he even used that in an ecumenical context when uh, someone asked him, I believe it was a Lutheran partner at a Catholic church or vice versa and they were saying you know is it okay for us to receive communion together and he said well I I guess he was in a Lutheran church so he said well I I can't answer that for you but what I can say is that this is meant to be food for the journey and the journey's hard and I think you need that food Mm. (laughs) yeah it's awesome Awesome. Well, and Julie, we just came out of recording an episode with a couple of friends of ours who had been members of our local community for many years, a same-sex couple that the church just meant so much to them. And their sacramental wedding at our church, we also just had a 10th anniversary celebration and we're looking back over the last 10 years and their their sacrament was just a highlight to to our whole community. It became this beacon and this sign of hope. And I thank you for giving us that term, sacramental justice, because sometimes it feels mm-hmm. like, you know, we're just doing what we do. We're Catholics, right. we do sacrament. And of course we believe it's powerful, but then when we walk into a sacrament that has has the kind of palpable, like where you can feel like the spirit of change and acceptance and just radical love um, yeah. in like a situation like that where Judy and Therese were surrounded by the parish that loves them and celebrating the sacrament of their love. Then it just strikes a depth and a chord that's different for me when I've experienced sacrament 
where I don't know anybody in in the room and maybe it's said without making eye contact you know it, it's just it's different it's it's still sacrament but there is a potency and a magic when you have that kind of a relationship and you're moving in a, a sacramental justice direction yeah. and I, it makes me proud to be part of the independent world when we talk like that yeah very much so and and I like the idea of sacramental magic there's there's a way in which you know the sacraments in the modern world can be very rationalized not only legalized Mm -hmm. um, beyond recognition but also rationalized beyond recognition and when catholics say they love the sacraments what they're talking about is often very core spiritual Mm pre-verbal non-rationalizable things that I do think independent Catholicism tries to honor Mm -hmm. and resuscitate. That, too, is a very courageous thing, again, Mm -hmm. in a modern world that wants to be very skeptical of, you know, any spiritual reality. And yet independent Catholicism says, you know, how can we take this thing as very smart, intelligent people that still holds a place for what we can't speak and what mm-hmm. we can't comprehend in yeah. our small human brains and mm-hmm. is an opening to the divine beyond what we know and beyond what we can say. So I do think if there's a way in which I'd sort of use the word magic for, you know, what Catholics hope the sacraments do, it's that to say, you know, magic is this word from, you know, pre-modern reality about things that don't really exist. Well, let's bring that into the modern world and say the sacraments are magic. They mm-hmm. they do hold that place for what we don't know, what we can't say and speak. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. How beautifully put. Question I've been wanting to uh, ask you, Julie, ever since we started, uh, actually, um, before the program began, I thought, I wonder if I'll have a chance to ask Julie this before. Could you tell me a little bit about your educational background? I want to get back to personal stories, but I just, I noticed on uh, one of the websites I checked that you have your undergraduate degree, a master's degree, and a doctorate from Duke. What were you studying in all of that? Were your concentrations and your fields? I did a meandering path Mm -hmm. through Duke undergrad and graduate that included medieval and renaissance studies Mm -hmm. and feminist theology Mm -hmm. and finally i landed in looking at american religion Mm -hmm. mostly because it was where i felt like i could take all the critical theory and feminist theology and put it to actual instances and actions i was kind of getting a little bit tired of the abstractions and just wanted stories to tell. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I'm really glad I'm on this podcast where yeah, we're yeah. telling stories. <laughs> yeah. And and so, you know, American religion is just is just full of stories. And the first book I wrote was about basketball players who were Catholic in the Archdiocese of Philadelphia in mm-hmm. the mid 20th century and how mm-hmm. playing basketball was for them this incredible way of doing a slightly different version of Catholic femininity in pre-Vatican two years. So that book was fun to write, and I got to interview all these 80-year-old nuns who had played basketball (laughs) back in the day. So awesome. They would look at me and say, I could take you on right now. Ah, that's (laughs) awesome. 
to me, 80-year-old nuns are way tougher than any of us. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. Yeah. So, oh, my gosh. So then, so that was a project squarely within the Roman communion. And as I you know, went through all that exploring within what counted as American Catholicism and, as I described, found uh, George Stallings' journey so fascinating and then many other independent Catholics that turned into what I wanted to look at next. And, you know, there's really just so many stories. One of the things I found so interesting was how independent Catholicism is already part of how Catholicism works in the United States. It's Mm. small and largely invisible, but it's actually in the metal of it already in this way that already when Roman Catholic lay people or Roman Catholic clergy can't do a sacrament within Roman canonical norms, Mm -hmm. they might find an independent Catholic church to do it. We get calls about that every other week. Sure, (laughs) sure. Exactly. So basically there's word of mouth out there among Mm -hmm. Roman Catholic lay people that, you know, if you want a sacramental Catholic wedding, but you want it on the beach, which mm-hmm. the Roman Church doesn't allow, or you are wanting a Mass at which everyone can take communion, which mm-hmm. the Roman Church won't allow. Mm-hmm. You you know, can find some Catholic priest who will actually do that for you. Mm-hmm. And so even if they're back in the Roman parish the next week, which most of them are, that's part of how, you know, this sacramental need is getting met in the in the Catholic population at large. And I'm sure you ran into this as well, just uh, as members of the clergy, that there are Roman Catholic priests, too, who will reach out to friends who are independent Catholic priests and say, mm-hmm. I can't do this wedding or I can't do this baptism, but you can. Can I send them to you? Sure. That happens. Well, and sure. the number so of vowed religious that are doing various ministries that reach out to connect with us because we can help them in different ways. Yeah, I mean, lots of people within the Roman Church, yeah, sure. will extend a hand, and it's amazing, the collaboration. Sure. Yes, yes. So so that's a level of very on-the-down-low action that's sure. happening already, but it's part of how Catholicism is working. You know, there aren't enough Roman Catholic priests and there are restrictions on Roman sacraments and that's overflowing into other contexts. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So Julie, how has your study of independent Catholicism and your time with the Church of Antioch affected you in your life and practice and faith, however you might want to put that? It was just so moving to spend time among Folks who I found to be, as I said before, just incredibly courageous. Mm -hmm. This is a um, small movement. It's not well known. It often has aspersions cast upon it. And in the face of all that, to do this version of Catholicism in witness to what independent Catholics really feel needs to be the truth of the faith, an openness, um, different structure. And let's also mention, you know, these are ventures that are often conducted by priests who have day jobs. Everyone yeah. in the independent Catholic movement is not doing it for the money. They're not getting rich off yeah. of this. It is often supported barely by small congregations or 
or doing the whole venture as worker priests. Yeah. So there's um, incredible commitment and fortitude mm-hmm. and strength and spiritual witness in it. Mm-hmm. So all of that very much moved me. I think that overall it was you know, a process of, for me as a scholar, just breaking down what I had learned Catholicism was mm-hmm. and rebuilding it mm-hmm. so that mm-hmm. it turned into, you know, not a simple equation of Catholicism means Roman Catholicism, mm-hmm. but not assuming anything about what Catholicism was so I could really train myself to see. Mm-hmm. And I think once you have eyes for independent Catholicism, you mm-hmm. actually see it everywhere. Mm-hmm. It's all over. It's actually hard not to run into independent Catholicism mm-hmm. these days. But but there's effect of categories and blinders about categories that, Mm. you know, not just scholars, but also the media and also most Mm. Americans have about what Catholicism is. And so in the book, I really, really tried to break down that simple knee-jerk equation of Catholicism with Roman Catholicism so we could all see Mm. what is actually before our eyes a little bit better. You know, uh, right there, Julie, is something I want to put in italics and bold because it, it, it was hitting me as I was reading your book that you strike me as at one and the same time uh, the kind of imaginative scholar that, that turns on my desire to think about things more theoretically and from the 30,000-foot view, and yet there's this person that keeps coming through who's like fighting uh, almost like a like a sojourner truth kind of fighting for for insisting that people open up their eyes and see what's right before them like like championing some people who are not being seen and i wonder if i love that that's coming through and it's very attractive to me and i'm wondering if if it has something to do with, didn't you say your mom had some advanced degree in theology or something, but she wasn't good enough to be the head of religious education or something in, in some setting? She wasn't hired because of her stance on contraception, I believe. Was it? Ah, that's what it was. Yeah. Yes, yes. So, well, so I'm, it, my it, parents I, were a, definitely a, a piece of work, the two of them. <laughs> How lucky were you? Well, maybe maybe I'm reading something into it, so stop me if, it's, if I'm romanticizing your story. But I'm just, I, it, it seems to me you really are somebody who says, no, no, we, we need to look at this. We need to pay attention. The, there are some concepts that are in your head that are stopping you from seeing what's really going on here is it yeah. is it just me or is that really going on inside of you it is and i i do think it is you know just a, a tradition in the family of of the the most mundane and the most lofty theoretical converging and clashing <laughs> at the supper table every night so my yeah, parents yeah. were both good my parents were both intellectuals, and my father had left Roman seminary to get married, and he got a PhD in religion and taught college for mm. his whole life. My mother was in the first Marquette University class that mm. granted Masters of Theology to women, mm. and met my father there, mm. and she very much felt that raising five kids put her theology degree to great use. Yeah. And <laughs> so so it was, you know, it was that kind of dinner table conversation. And 
they did encourage lots of questioning. I remember when my father, I I remember a a church party at which my father got into a fight with one of the priests about (laughs) women's ordination. And, you know, he's a theology professor, and so they're a little scared of him, but they were, you know, saying, you know, priesthood reserved to men. And he said, I have four daughters and you cannot tell me that they would not be the best priests. And, you know, it was so, I saw these kinds of things happen, a questioning within the Roman communion. And so at, at this point, you know, I have a a lot of other Catholics on my hands in my own family with uh, my father, who is kind of a freelance monk at this point, and mm-hmm. my sisters, who are novelists and artists, who work with the stuff of Catholicism to do art, and mm-hmm. and I just find that, you know, I, I get to sort of take all that juice of, of intellectual thinking about religion and, and put it in the context of new people I can meet. I just love going out and getting to talk to people as my job. It's incredible. Mm-hmm. And to, you know, hear from them their stories. How did you come to independent Catholicism? And yeah. someone says, Oh, well, you know, I was raised congregationalist or someone else says I was, you know, in the Episcopal Church and yeah. someone else says I was a Roman seminarian, but I didn't think I could stay in the closet for my whole life. And all of these stories just really captivate me and are continuously answers to the same questions that I was asking. Yeah. It, it's so beautiful the way that you capture these stories, Julie, and we just are so grateful for your capturing and telling them because it's enriching our experience of church. And um, it's just been a real honor that you allowed us into your story, too, and, and talked about your family and your journey. And we just are excited to maybe continue to be in contact with you as your journey unfolds, as more books come, as you continue to explore. It's just really a pleasure to talk to you. I feel like I could talk to you for a lot longer, so uh, maybe I was picking that up also in what Jessica was saying. So we we would look forward to any opportunity to have another conversation with you in the future, Julie. This has been really rich. Thank you. Thank you so much, too. It's been a delight, and I can't wait to keep the conversation going here and across the independent Catholic communities of the country. Yeah, and we'll see you in St. Louis in a few weeks. (laughs) Will do. Can't wait for that. That's right. For our listeners, our closing question this week, which you can answer or give us your thoughts on social media, on Facebook or Twitter, is where has your spiritual journey diverged from the religion of your childhood? How would you describe your otherness now? Julie, these little blessings, I was in charge of writing liturgy when I was in parish work, and um, writing blessings was one of my favorite things to do, so I continue to do it with this show. And the blessing for today is grow. So the container of your youth explodes, revealing deep hues, wide roots, and undeniable magic. Amen. Amen. And you've been listening to a priest and a bishop walk into a story. I'm Jessica Gazzola. And I'm Francis Cripps. Please walk with us into our next story on A Priest and a Bishop Walk Into a Story. On the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network.